Families are complicated and messy. And the family stories we read in the Bible are no different. In fact, the passage you are about to hear should probably warrant a trigger warning. Of course, that's true of many passages in the Bible. On this Juneteenth, we tell the story of Hagar, the enslaved Egyptian woman whom Sarah and Abraham owned and used and abused and sent away. It is one of the uglier and more sordid tales in the Bible. It is one, frankly, as I was studying it this week, I wanted to look away from, much as we often want to look away from the legacy of slavery in our own country that is still systemically present today. But it is also a story, I think, of a courageous and resilient young woman whom God sees and acknowledges and blesses. It is a story, I hope, of the arc of the moral universe, which is oh so long and slow, but we hope and pray it always bends toward justice. So to set the scene for our passage, you'll remember that Abraham and Sarah have received a covenant and a promise from God that they would be parents of a great nation. But as time goes on, no baby comes. They are getting older, and so Sarah gets the bright idea to give Hagar, whom she owns, to her husband for purposes of procreation. Hagar does indeed conceive and bears a son, Ishmael, but Sarah becomes jealous and treats Hagar harshly. But when Sarah herself miraculously conceives at the ripe old age of 90, Abraham was 100, and gives birth to Isaac, her jealousy only grows. It's as if Sarah believes that there is only enough blessing for one heir, and she wants it to be for her son. So she callously and cruelly convinces Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away to a certain death in the desert. It is, I think, a little bit like the Bible's version of the TV show Succession. Reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 21, 8 through 21. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit, along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on the account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite of him, a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, do not let me look on the death of this child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we come into your presence this morning from our particular lives, worried about many things, and yet here in worship, you lift us up and show us the whole world you made with its many nations and races, and you call us to live for a moment in your boundless mystery and in the presence of your love for all your children. So startle us again with your truth and open our hearts to your will for us today. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There's a show on PBS that I'm kind of obsessed with. Uh, maybe some of you have seen it. It's called Finding Your Roots. It's hosted by Robert Louis Gates Jr. In it, he and his team dig into their guests' genealogical roots, even, even using DNA to recover the hidden stories of their past. It's an arduous task, especially for those guests whose ancestors have been previously enslaved, as these persons were mostly treated like property in the archives, so it's difficult to piece together their family stories. And yet many of the guests are moved to tears, and sometimes me too, uh, as they hear stories of the hardships their families endured and feel empowered by the sheer gratitude in the resilience they faced in the face of all odds. In some ways, we are the sum of multitudes who have gone before us. I read a meme the other day that pointed out that for you, for each person here to even exist, to be born, you needed two parents, four grandparents, eight great, uh, grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents, 32 third-great-grandparents, 
and so on. So for you to be born today from 12 previous generations, you needed a total of 4,094 ancestors over the past 400 years. Think for a moment about how many struggles, how many battles, how much sadness and happiness. Think of all the love stories and the mistakes and the hope for the future your ancestors experienced for you to exist in this moment. You are the dream of many, of multitudes. You are the dream of many by God's steadfast grace. It was the afternoon of June 19th, 1865 that Union General Gordon Granger rode into Galveston, Texas, bolstered by more than a thousand Union troops. The crowd gathered as he read to them General Order Number Three. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an, absolutely, an absolute equality of rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. The reactions to this profound news range from pure shock to immediate jubilation. After all, this was two and a half years after President Lincoln had issued the Emancipation Proclamation, and it was two and a half months after General Lee had surrendered and the Civil War was over. The mythology around this event has always been that it was the first time that these last enslaved people had heard the news. But as in all of life, the truth is always a bit more complex and messy. We often learn in school, unless you live in Florida maybe, <laughs> that it was, <laughs> that it was, that it was the Emancipation Proclamation that freed the slaves, right? We learned that. Uh, but in truth, Lincoln's proclamation only extended to the slaves in the Union states, a small portion of the almost four million enslaved people at that time. And we know that many slave owners were actually actively moving to Texas in order to avoid having to free their slaves. It's even speculated that in at the time when Lee's surrender, that the two and a half months between Lee's surrender and General Granger's announcement on Juneteenth was so that the plantation owners could get one last cotton crop in the ground. And yet, for the enslaved people in Texas, the news was sheer jubilation. And through the years, this 
Juneteenth celebration became a holiday of emancipation, often centering around the African-American churches. Juneteenth celebrations spread across the country, and on June 17, 2021, it was declared a federal holiday. It is an opportunity for us to celebrate with our black brothers and sisters and to be reminded once again that none are free unless all are free. But we also take time to educate ourselves about the legacy of slavery and its impact that is still active in the systems and structures in this country we all love. We lift up Juneteenth to, it, to celebrate the incredible legacy and resiliency and contributions of black lives and to perhaps repent of those same systems and structures that have benefited some of us to the detriment of others. Now, pastors almost never preach about Hagar. It is one of the stories dubbed by legendary biblical scholar Phyllis Tickle, one of the texts of terror. I chose it for this Juneteenth sermon mainly because as a privileged white woman, I felt like I needed to wrestle with it. And man, I have to tell you, uh, it was a hard text to wrestle with. It's filled with the worst patriarchy, classism, xenophobia, and, ab and abuse, perhaps not unlike our own ancestors' stories if we go back far enough. In fact, there are many black women, especially single moms, who still identify as being daughters of Hagar. The story of Hagar starts back a few chapters earlier than the text we read today, where Abraham and Sarah were rich and established and powerful. They have flocks of sheep and goats, and they have people who are enslaved. What they don't have is a son. And so Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham as, uh, let's call it what it is, a sex slave. He traffics, she traffics her. Hagar did not have agency. She did not have control over her body. She did not even have control over her child, should she have one. In fact, she did not even have a name. Hagar was an, undoubtedly not the name her mother gave her when she was lovingly brought into the world. Hagar in Hebrew means simply the article hey, the, and the noun gar, which means foreigner or of other. She was the gar, the other. All it seems she has to offer those in power is her own fertility. And so in this earlier story, when she first becomes pregnant with Ishmael and is raised in her society's, and her, her uh, stock has raised in her society's twisted accounting system, Sarah's backlash, Sarah, her owner's backlash, 
backlash is swift, and she begins to beat Hagar and to treat her harshly. And so Hagar runs away for the first time into the desert. But then this beautiful thing happens. God finds her. And when she tells God that she is running away, God first urges her to return. But then God gives her this incredible blessing, promising to give her life, life for her and life for her child and life for her children's children's children. And finally, wonderfully, Hagar, the outsider, the brave one, gives God a name. She is the only one in the Bible to give God a name. She calls God El Roy, the one who sees. The one who sees me and whom I have seen. God has seen her as a person of meaning and significance. Hagar does indeed go back to her captor. She gives birth to a son and she names him Ishmael, which means the one who hears. We pick up the story a few years later when Sarah has witnessed Ishmael literally in the Hebrew laughing with his young half-brother. And Sarah decides that Hagar must go, along with her son. Believing there is only so much blessing to go around, Sarah wants to make sure her son, Isaac, gets his. Sarah says to Abraham, cast out this slave woman. Doesn't even use her name cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son shall not inherit along with my son. Abraham, after apparently consulting with God, rather passively gathers up a loaf of bread and a skin of water and sends them out on their way to an almost certain death. When the provisions are gone, Hagar finally gives up, and that's when we find that the God who sees also is the God who hears. God hears Ishmael and gives him, too, a blessing of a great nation. And then God opens Hagar's eyes and she's, that she might see a well of water, that she might care for her child. Hagar, the resilient and strong, has finally been affirmed as the one who championed God's purposes and is no one's property and no one's slave. I don't know about you, but I confess I have a hard time identifying with anyone in this text. I can use my imagination to imagine some of the trauma that Hagar endured, but I will never fully experience what it's like to be owned or to go through life as completely other. And to my shame, even though she is the villainess of the story, I fear Sarah may be part of my own story, the story of privilege, as she speaks for many slave owners throughout the centuries who regarded other people's children as less valuable than their own, even if that meant dehumanizing her sister. 
As for Abraham, his passivity in the face of all the machinations surrounding him are completely baffling to me. I even have a hard time with some of God's actions in this text. After all, God tells Hagar to go back to her abusers. And later he tells Abraham to just let Sarah do whatever she wants with Hagar. It occurs to me, and this is my own take-home message, that they were all working within their own societal structures and the inherited injustices that they had gotten from their ancestors. They could not envision another way. But perhaps, perhaps we can. Maybe some of those injustices and othering that come from the cultures that we grew up in, we are still inheriting today. There are reasons that our, our unjust systems, our unjust societal structures persist. There are reasons, and if we're honest, it's probably because we unwittingly, or our ancestors, perhaps wittingly, profited from them. What we need to address, I hope, is that the deepest place within us where racism or sexism or homophobia secretly hides in places we never want anybody to know or see, places we sometimes can't see ourselves, we need to uncover and look at. We have to come to terms with. We have much to do. It is holy work. The prophet Isaiah said, beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. When General Granger and the Union soldiers brought that good news to our brothers and sisters, we people of good faith rejoice, but we also get to work. There's this story that haunts me. A colleague of mine recently visited the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, the so-called Lynching Museum. It was opened in 2018 and it commemorates the more than 4,400 African-American men, women, and children who were hanged, burned alive, shot, drowned, and beaten to death by white mobs between 1877 and 1950. As my friend wandered through the magnificent museum, she came upon the names of some people in Calhoun County who were the victims of lynching. On this day in Calhoun County, Georgia, December 1st, 1884, just 20 years after Juneteenth, she saw on the marker the names Emma and Lily, no surname, and the third was just marked unknown. She asked the docent to look them up in the database, and here's what she found. After Calvin Mike 
voted in Calhoun County, Georgia in 1884. A white mob attacked and burned his home, lynching his elderly mother and his two young daughters, Emma, age six, and Lily, age four, lynched because their father had claimed the right granted to him by the US Constitution. Friends, life is complicated and often not pretty. We don't want to be woke. Mothers and fathers of color must worry for their sons and daughters in ways that most of us don't have to. The systems we inherit are imperfect and many of them need to be changed. Maybe it's time to trade them in for a better way. One time Jesus was preparing his disciples for the frightening future they faced. Do not be afraid, he told them. And then he invoked a powerful metaphor about sparrows, about what, not one sparrow falling apart from God's love and compassion and powerful presence. Not one sparrow falls. In the midst of the messiness of life, God shows up. Like any good parent, he hears, she sees the most vulnerable among us. I leave you with this story of hope from Anne Lamont from one of her early books, Traveling Mercies. She's writing about her little church in Marin County, Florida. She writes, one of our new, newer members, a man named Ken Nelson, is dying of AIDS, disintegrating before our very eyes. Ken has a totally lopsided face, ravaged and emaciated, but when he smiles, he is radiant. He says he would gladly pay any price for what he has now, which is Jesus and us. There's a woman in the choir named Renola, who is large and beautiful and jovial and black and as devout as can be, who has been a little standoffish toward Ken. She was raised in the South by Baptists who taught her that, th that his way of life, that he himself was an abomination. It is hard for her to break through this, but Kenny has come to church almost every week for the last year and won almost everybody over. He finally missed a couple of Sundays when he got too weak, and then a month ago he was back weighing almost no pounds, his face even more lopsided. Still, during the prayers of the people, he talked joyously of his life and his decline, of grace and redemption, of how safe and happy he feels these days. So on this one particular Sunday for the, for the hymn, first hymn we sang, Jacob's Ladder, she writes, which goes every rung goes higher, higher, while ironically, Kenny couldn't even stand up. But he sang away, sitting down with the hymnal on his lap. And then when it came time for the second hymn, we were singing, his eye is on the sparrow, and the pianist, was playing and the whole congregation had risen. Only Ken remained seated, holding the hymnal on his lap. And we began to sing, why should I feel discouraged? Why do the shadows fall? 
and Renola. Renola watched Kenny rather skeptically for a moment. And then her face began to melt and contort just like his. And she went to his side and she bent down to lift him up. She lifted up this white rag doll, this scarecrow. She held him next to her and she draped him over and against her like a child while they sang. His eye is on the sparrow and it pierced me. Friends, God sees and God hears. Amen.